The Apostle Paul writing says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, thank you now for your word. Bless these few moments. Father, may uh, in this time, may your spirit make clear to us in ways that are new and fresh the glories and the excellencies of your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So yesterday in our presbytery meeting, we had the opportunity to hear from and then license to preach the gospel a gentleman named Pastor Imad Tawadras. Now, you might be guessing from both the first and last name that he's not from Pender. He doesn't hail from Hooper. Rather, Pastor Imad is originally from Egypt. And he is a native Arabic speaker, so much so that both in our team meeting and on the floor, we needed an interpreter for him to go through his oral exam. Some of it was so that he could understand us, but more than likely it was so that we could actually understand him. He speaks English, but it's, it's heavily accented English. Well, at one point in our team meeting, Pastor Ahmad explained to us the process that he uses uh, when evangelizing Muslims. That's his ministry in Omaha. It's called the Arabic Christian Fellowship. Uh, the goal one day we pray is that there would be an Arabic-speaking PCA church in the city of Omaha. And so Pastor Ahmad uh, is working at Walmart part-time and then serving this church part-time. And by the way, he has a Ph.D. in history. So uh, I guess that goes to show how much a Ph.D. in history is worth. It gets you a job at Walmart. But Pastor Ahmad, we were asking him about what it means to evangelize Muslims. And he said this. He said, when I'm evangelizing a Muslim, it's all about Jesus Christ. I begin with what they know, the Quran. Now, by the way, let me just stop. I had no idea the Quran spoke of Jesus, other than Jesus is a prophet. But Pastor Imad corrected all of us yesterday. The Quran speaks of Jesus as creating some things. And I want them to see that even in the Quran, Jesus is unique. There is no one else like him. Our text for this morning tells us of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. There is no one else like him. The one who Pastor Imad proclaims to Muslims is the same Jesus that we must trust for our own salvation. Now, if you look in your bulletin, you see uh, in the outline on page five, something there called the big idea. And the big idea is, Lord willing, what the sermon is about in one sentence. Here it is. Jesus Christ reigns supreme 
and he alone is sufficient. Jesus Christ reigns supreme, and he alone is sufficient. Two points this morning then. First, let's see that Christ is indeed supreme. We want to see that Jesus is supreme. In verse 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that word image is an interesting one because it has multiple layers. It's got multiple meanings to it. It means, on the one hand, that Jesus is the very exegesis of God. Jesus explains God the Father to us. You may recall in his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells her that God is spirit. Well, we can't see a spirit. But it was possible to see Jesus. And so Paul tells us that Jesus is makes that which is invisible visible. He is the exegesis of God himself. Now, that word image, from which we get our word icon, also can be used to speak of a portrait. We see God when we see Jesus. But it's more than that. The image of the invisible God is also something that reveals God. Jesus explains God. He is the portrait of God. And Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. And as we're going to see, there's no one else who does this. Jesus is the exegesis. He's the explanation. He's the portrait. He is the revelation. Now, Paul's going to come back to this idea because as we continue to make our way through the book of Colossians, he's going to use this very stunning thought to confront what scholars refer to as the, the, uh, the Colossian controversy. And in any sort of academic field, uh, those of you who are English majors, which is a, probably a far more useful degree than being a history major, uh, English majors, you know that uh, when you're reading, for example, Jane Austen, you don't just read Jane Austen. You have to read all the scholarship related to Jane Austen. So it's books about the book that you haven't really read yet. Well, the same is true in biblical studies. And scholars of Paul have been arguing for a couple hundred years about, well, what is the controversy? What's the exact nature of the thing that Paul's trying to address? And there's no great consensus, but they do agree on a couple things. One of them is that there's an early form of Gnosticism in the church in Colossae that Paul is dealing with. Now, Gnosticism was a pretty nasty kind of quasi-religious philosophy. And among it, among the things that it believed was that anything physical, anything uh, that's tangible in the physical world has to be evil. That only those things that are pure spirit can be pure, purely good. So Paul saying that Jesus is the revelation, he's the portrait, he's the exegesis of God, fires a shot across the bow of the Gnostics. You see, Jesus can be fully human and still divine. But the Gnostics also believed that while Jesus was one revelation of God, he wasn't the only revelation of God. In fact, uh, they argued that there was this great ladder 
that you had to climb in order to get to God himself. Jesus was then the first rung on the ladder to God. And Paul's saying, no, he's not the first rung. He's the only rung. There aren't any other rungs. There's no other way. There's no one greater than Jesus because he is the image of the invisible God. So then he tells us that Jesus is supreme, not just in the way he reveals the Father, but in verses 16 and 17, we see that Jesus is supreme in creation. He tells us in verse 16, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by him. Now again, if you're thinking that Jesus is the first rung on the ladder and there's going to be something greater than him, Paul says, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. Jesus created everything. There's no one greater than Jesus. There's nothing greater than Jesus. By him, all things were created. Not everything except the stuff that's above him. No, he created all things. But that's not the phrase that gets us in trouble. The phrase that gets us in trouble is when we start to think about what does it mean to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? And the trouble comes, and this is true in any language, that anytime you have to translate, it's, it's a sort of inexact science. It doesn't mean that we can't trust uh, the Bible, but it does mean that there are nuances that English doesn't necessarily capture very well. That phrase firstborn can mean the one who is born first, but it can also mean the one who is first in rank or honor. In Psalm 89, that word is used to speak of the Messiah. In other words, Paul is saying that the highest honor of all creation belongs to Jesus. It goes to no one else. He alone is first in rank. He alone is first in honor. It's not suggesting that somehow... Uh, God the Father found a goddess somewhere, and in the natural course of things, uh, there was a firstborn son. No, Paul is telling us, and when we look at the context, we understand that simply can't be the case. No, Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ is first in honor, that the highest honor and glory belongs to him. And we understand that Jesus gets the highest honor and glory because he's the creator. He goes on to tie those two things together, doesn't he? He's the firstborn of all creation. Oh yeah, and by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the creator. So when we read Genesis chapter 1, as Meredith read for us, and we see every time it says, and God said, we realize that's the second person of the Trinity at work in creation. We note also, that Paul says it isn't just that he created all things. But at the end of verse 16, we read this. All things were created through him and for him. So in other words, not only is Jesus the one who created all things, but Jesus is also the goal. 
He's the end for which creation exists. Why is everything created? Everything's created to bring the Lord Jesus Christ glory and honor and praise. Now that word for can also be translated toward, which means we could read this passage this way. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and toward him. What is the created world moving towards? Or, more precisely, who is the created world moving towards? It's moving towards Christ. He is the word at the beginning. And at his coming, when the living word of God returns, it will be the end. If you uh, are a fan of C.S. Lewis, and if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, then you've uh, seen this great truth really uh, illustrated for us beautifully in the first and the last book of the Narnia series. The first book is The Magician's Nephew. And in it, uh, Diggory uh, and his friend are taken to Narnia, and they see the creation of all things. And it's Aslan, through song, creates everything that is. It's a really beautiful uh, section in the book. It's not my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia, but it's a darn good book. And then in the end, in the last battle, it is the call of Aslan, who is the Christ figure in Lewis's books. It's the call and the cry of Aslan. It's the return of Aslan that lets everyone know that Narnia as it currently existed is going to be no more. And what are they moving towards? Further up and further in. What is it they're moving towards? They're moving towards Aslan's country. See, Lewis understood the truth of Colossians chapter 1. By him and toward him, all things have been created. Jesus alone is supreme. He is supreme in creation because he alone uh, with the Trinity, he is the creator and he is the one who will usher in the new creation as we will see in verse 18. But that isn't all that he does. Notice that he tells us in verse 17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Okay, I want you to stop for just a moment. Uh, don't look at me. I know that's hard. Don't look at me. Thank you, Dan. Uh, close your eyes. Be very quiet. Uh, feel yourself breathing. Now, you can do this a couple different ways. You can put your fingers... Uh, on your on your near your windpipe or you can put them on your wrist feel your heart beating okay stop please you can look at me again friends if jesus was not who the bible says he is your breath would stop and your heart would cease If Jesus is not who Paul says he is in Colossians chapter 1, 
It's not that we would spin off into nothingness, right? Because gravity would cease to exist. No, there wouldn't be anything here. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He, in him, all things hold together. Now, that can be problematic. Because we look at the world around us and we go, well, you know, it's kind of a mess. Yeah, it is. But think how much more of a mess it would be if God didn't sovereignly rule and sustain all that is. So I wonder this morning, is this the Jesus that you worship? Do you worship a Jesus who uh, makes God known? Do you worship the Jesus who is the portrait and the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you worship the Jesus who is first in rank or honor? Do you worship the Jesus understanding that the highest honor we can possibly give belongs to him? Do we worship Jesus understanding that he is the goal? He is the end for which creation exists. And do you worship the Jesus who holds your very breath in his hands? The one who sustains you? Or do you worship what my friend Kent Hughes calls a scaled down Christ? I remember uh, when I was a, a, a boy, we went car shopping one time. And I'm not sure why my parents thought it would be a good idea to bring four children. I think I was about 11 or 12, which meant my brother was four. So you had from 12 to four, there were four of us in the car dealership. It took most of a Saturday afternoon to get it done. Uh, but we were buying a car. And it's interesting, back in those days, uh, you had to haggle because there wasn't an interwebs. And then there was all kinds of uh, packages that you could get on the car, right? You could, you could. Uh, this particular day, we were the proud owners of a Chevy Chevette. It was a chick magnet car. Or so my uncle told me, because he bought it from my parents when we were done with it. Well, the Chevy Chevette, as you know, came with a bunch of different options on it. You could get a stripped down Chevette. In fact, a friend of mine in college had a Chevette that was so stripped down it didn't even have a radio. It had stick shift, a heater, four windows that worked, and it, it may have had power steering, but I think it was out on Scott's car. Well, friends, so many of us worship a Jesus that's the equivalent of a stripped down Chevy Chevette. We don't worship the Jesus who Paul presents to us. But instead, we worship a Jesus who we think is going to be some cosmic genie in the bottle. Jesus is going to make your life better. Are you kidding me? Life would not exist without him. And you're going to go, oh, I worship Jesus because he makes my life better. Okay, sure. We worship a scaled-down Christ when the Jesus who is supreme in creation and then also in new creation is present to us. It's not just that Jesus reigns supreme in the world that he has created, 
But there is a new creation at work. In verse 18, he tells us he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see, Jesus isn't just supreme in the world out there. Jesus is supreme in the life of his church. And as we're going to see, Paul ties a Jesus preeminence to the cross. But in this instance, he ties it, verse 18, he tells us that Jesus is the head. Why? Because he's the firstborn from the dead. In other words, Jesus receives glory and honor and praise because he is first in rank or honor. He was the first to be resurrected from the dead and then to be ascended to God the Father. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is important because the hope of the gospel is, hey, if God resurrected Jesus, then he will resurrect you too. To be in Christ means that same resurrection power is a part of your life. It's a part of your story. That we can know with certainty when we lay folks in the ground, people that we love and care for, we can know for certainty that if they are in Christ, just as certainly as God resurrected his son, so certainly will they resurrect those, will he resurrect those who are in Christ. And friends, this is such a comforting thought. It's been roughly four and a half years ago since uh, my mother-in-law died. And I wouldn't say that it was a crisis of faith, but I would say it was one of those uh, one of those moments in which, as a guy who's preached more funerals than I want to think about, to have, have to actually stop and go, do I really trust that God the Father is going to resurrect someone that I love and care for dearly because she was in Christ? Do I really believe that? bad when the preacher has to go, huh, okay. Let me stop and see if I do. And at the end of the day, I will tell you, I do. Jesus Christ being the firstborn from the dead means that if you are in Christ, as certainly as God the Father resurrected his son, so you can look forward to God the Father resurrecting you. Well, it isn't just that Jesus is supreme, but Jesus is also sufficient. He is sufficient. In verses 19 and 20, he goes on then to explain to us why it is that Jesus is the head of the church. It's not just that he's the firstborn from the dead. That would be enough. But then he reiterates, he's the head of the body, the church. Why? Because in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 19. In other words, we learn in Jesus that God is with us. The person of Jesus is important. He was not just some great moral teacher. Jesus was not just some guy 
uh, who thought of himself as being the Messiah. But Jesus is actually God with us. He is Emmanuel, as promised by the prophets. Jesus is the fullness of God. Not fullness in the sense of there's something lacking and so Jesus adds to God what isn't there. No, but fullness as in he is the complete complement of all that God is. And so in the person of Jesus Christ, we learn that God is with us. But friends, that might not necessarily be good news. Think about your Bible. Think about what happens at Babel. As God comes down and sees all that human beings are up to and decides then once he's been and seen for himself, he's going to bring judgment. Think about when God sees all that's going on in the time of Noah and understand then the judgment that followed was God's righteous judgment against the sin that he saw and that he found. Or think if you would, about what happens when the second person of the Trinity sees what's going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God being with us is not necessarily good news. And that's why we need verse 20. See, God isn't just with us, but God is for us. God is for us. Look at verse 20. And through him through Christ to reconcile to himself. So God the Father through God the Son is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's work. God the Father sent God the Son for a particular purpose. And that purpose, Paul tells us, has been accomplished. And the accomplishment of that purpose was on the cross. See, God's judgment always accompanies God's presence, always accompanies God coming down and being with us. There's, there's no way around it. We're sinful. But what Paul is telling us is that God can be for us because the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was to take God's righteous wrath on himself and he does so at the cross. So let me uh, try to explain it to you this way. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I want you to understand that God is actually for you. He's not some uh, older gentleman sitting up in the sky with a big beard telling you not to have any fun. No, God is for you. And we know that God is for you, not just because he sent his son, because that could go either way. We know God is for you because he sent his son in order to die in your place. He sent his son to do a particular work. And that work, we're told in verse 20, was the work of reconciliation. Two parties that are at, at odds with one another have now been beautifully and wonderfully reconciled. So God is with us. We know that through the person and work of Jesus. And we're either going, woohoo, that's wonderful, or ah, I don't know. 
But it's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that tells us that God being with us is actually really good news. Because God the Father sent His Son so that all things would be reconciled to Him. And we have a reminder of that this morning. As we come to the table, we are reminded we can see it. We can touch it. We can smell it. We can taste it. We have all of these tangible reminders that God is for us. That in the sending of his son, he sent him for one reason and one reason only, and that was to die. There was an, uh, a book written in the early church called, and the, it was a question, why did God become man? Here's the short answer, to die. That's why he came. And so Jesus, when he institutes the Last Supper, says to them, hey, this is my body. Paul goes on to add, which is broken for you. And this is my blood. And it's a new covenant that I'm making with my people. Friends, we know that God is for us because he sent his son to die. And this morning, God is reminding us again in ways that are tangible. I am for you. I love you. I want to be reconciled to you. In fact, I want to be reconciled to you so much that I will send my only son in order to die in your place. Friends, he alone is supreme and he alone is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. And forgive us. Forgive us for uh, the stripped down bargain Chevy Chevette version Jesus we like to think is a Cadillac. Uh, Lord, we pray that your spirit would continually remind us of when we are giving way and giving in the thoughts and notions about Jesus that would diminish either his supremacy, his supremacy or his sufficiency. For we ask this now in his name. Amen.